so this decision is uh, not only uh, something that will restrict the EPA's authority going forward, but also may have implications for other federal agencies who want to undergo regulatory changes. Well, not without the permission of five extremists on the Supreme Court. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Yeah. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. And I think today's show will have to do with all of them because I think they all have air. In all of those places. Yes. Am I right about that? I believe I think you are. so, yeah. Coast to coast and around the globe. We're also heard on the internets. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, ColeSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Well, the whiplash continues today. Sorry about that. From uh, public hearings in Congress on Donald Trump's attempt to to uh, marshal armed insurrectionists to help him steal the 2020 election, to critical midterm primary elections and special elections, and now back to the U.S. Supreme Court. Been a tough week. Boy, uh, howdy has it. Yeah, hasn't it, though? Uh, of course, the court last week gutted a century-old law to rob states of the right to well-regulate the bearing of arms just before gutting its own half-century-old precedent protecting privacy rights and reproductive freedoms. Well, on Thursday, that same rogue, corrupt, activist U.S. Supreme Court majority has now gutted the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to combat climate change in a ruling that also guts the ability for executive branches, executive branch agencies and, and uh, the issue experts at those agencies to do pretty much anything that Congress has not explicitly and very specifically instructed them to do. Yeah, we know you're experts, but uh, if Congress didn't specifically tell you to do it, you can't do it, expert. At least that's how I understand it. But we will have someone who understands all of this stuff better than me here in a second to help us make sense of that. Of another opinion released by the court today as well regarding immigration, which seems to be better news. But I'm not even sure about that. On the last day of its latest nine-month term, 
The Supreme Court also says goodbye to Justice Stephen Breyer, nominated to the high court in 1994 by Bill Clinton. He has now officially retired. He's been replaced by President Biden's first nominee, now Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, the first black woman to sit on the court since its creation some 250 years ago or so. Uh, so before we get to our guest, the great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com, on all of that and probably more, let's start with the GOP's stolen and packed 6-3 to three Supreme Court majority opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts in West Virginia versus EPA, which we have been warning about for quite some time. Des, I know you've been talking about it uh, on <laughs> the Green News now. Report. Yeah. yeah. Which uh, prevents now the EPA from regulating the carbon emissions from existing power plants under a rule created by the Obama administration that was actually put on hold by the courts years ago, never went into effect. It was reversed then by the Trump administration. So it never went into effect, though the radical extremists on our U.S. Supreme Court decided that, well... They wanted to kill it anyway. Is that about it for it yeah. in a short description? Yes, they wanted to kill it in advance before Biden could do anything at all. The U.S. Supreme Court on Thursday handcuffed the executive branch's authority to issue regulations to reduce carbon emissions from power plants in a ruling that will greatly limit President Joe Biden's yet to even be written plans to tackle climate change. The court's 6-3 to three ruling was supported by all of the court's Republican nominees. Three of them, you'll recall, jammed onto the court by Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell after they nuked the Senate filibuster rule that had previously required at least 60 votes in the upper chamber to confirm lifetime appointments to the highest court in the land. The uh, ruling on Thursday was opposed by all three remaining Democratic nominees to the court. It restricts the EPA's authority to protect the environment. Somewhat ironic, given it's the Environmental Protection Agency. It restricts their ability to do that by regulating greenhouse gas emissions from existing coal and gas-fired power plants under the landmark Clean Air Act. The anti-pollution law that was originally acted, uh, enacted in 1963, it was amended a number of times since then, many times since then. But the decision will constrain the EPA's ability to issue any regulations on power plants that push for an ambitious national shift in energy policy toward renewable sources. As such, the ruling will hamstring the Biden administration's ability to curb the power sector's emissions, representing nearly, uh, well, anywhere from uh, one quarter to one third of the nation's greenhouse gases, even though the Biden administration has not yet come out with their rule to do so. With uh, the chief justice writing for the majority uh, that while capping carbon emissions at a level that would encourage a nationwide energy transition that might be a sensible policy solution, quote, it is not plausible that Congress gave EPA the authority to adopt on its own such a regulatory scheme. That is not true. That is not true, as we <laughs> will uh, discuss uh, shortly with my guest. Uh, he wrote that capping carbon dioxide emissions at a level that will force a nationwide transition away from the use of coal to generate electricity 
may be a sensible, quote, solution to the crisis of the day with <laughs> solution of the crisis of the day. Yeah. It's just, just a, you know, yeah, the just a flavor, flavor of the month. It's not like, you know, the extinction of all life on Earth or anything like that. He actually, that would be maybe different. He actually put that in quotes. The solution to the crisis of the day. Sarcastic quotes as I read it. Uh, but Roberts wrote that the Clean Air Act doesn't give the EPA the authority to do so, and Congress must instead speak clearly on this subject. I'm sure they'll get right to that. Uh, he said, quote, a decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. Writing in dissent, Justice Elena Kagan said the court has chosen to hobble Biden's climate agenda before the administration has even issued its rule, noting, quote, the limits the majority now puts on EPA's authority fly in the face of the statute that Congress wrote. In doing so, she says the court, quote, deprives EPA of the power needed and the power granted to curb the emission of greenhouse gases. The ruling, she said, strips the EPA of the power that Congress gave it to respond to, quote, the most pressing environmental challenge of our time. More broadly, she notes, the court has a clear goal, quote, to prevent agencies from doing important work, even though that is what Congress directed. She said the court appoints itself instead of Congress or the expert agency the decision maker on climate policy. I cannot think of many things more frightening, she wrote. Indeed, the ruling is likely to have implications beyond the EPA as uh, as it raises brand new legal questions largely invented by this not conservative but radical court about any big decisions made by any federal agency. Right-wing legal activists have long advocated to reduce federal agency powers to enforce the law in what has been dubbed, as you'll recall, Donald Trump's disgraced former advisor Steve Bannon describing it, a war on the administrative state. U.S. Senate leader, a majority leader, Chuck Schumer, a Democrat, blasted the court's ruling, liking it to last week's quote, dangerously misguided and abhorrent decisions on ending recognition of a constitutional right to abortion and expanding gun rights. Like those two rulings, Schumer said, Thursday's decision will cause more needless deaths in this instance because of more pollution that will exacerbate the climate crisis and make our air and water less clean and safe. The ruling was based on what is called the, quote, major questions doctrine that requires explicit congressional authorization for action on issues that have deemed that have been deemed to be of broad importance and societal impact the justices in january embraced that theory when for example it blocked the biden administration's vaccine or test policy for larger businesses because it was such a major question it couldn't be answered by the expert scientists at any particular agency. It had to be answered by members of Congress. But none of that, the so-called major questions doctrine, none of that is in the Constitution. And as far as I know, it's wholly and entirely made up by the court as based on the radical right legal advocacy group hopes 
you know, as as Bannon has uh, frequently vowed to dismantle the administrative state, handcuffing the president of the United States and his or her agencies from responding to many of the most critical issues faced by the nation and, frankly, the world. The uh, power plant case has a long and complicated history. It begins with the Obama administration's clean power plan. That plan would have required states to reduce emissions from the generation of electricity, mainly by shifting away from coal-fired plants. But the plan never took effect. Acting in a lawsuit then filed by West Virginia and others, the Supreme Court blocked it. They blocked it in 2016 by a five to four vote with the right wingers in the majority. But with the plan then on hold, it was left in legal limbo. The legal fight over it continued. But then Donald Trump took office. His EPA repealed that Obama era plan, arguing that its authority to reduce carbon emissions was limited. And it devised instead a new plan that sharply reduced the federal government's role in the issue. New York and 21 other mainly Democratic states and the District of Columbia and some of the nation's largest cities actually sued over the Trump plan. The federal appeals court in Washington, D.C., then ruled against both Trump's repeal and his new plan. And its decision then left nothing in effect, no rule limiting emissions from coal and gas-fired power plants. That, as the Biden administration began to draft a new policy. Well, a group of Republican-led U.S. states, led by major coal producer West Virginia, then asked the uh, Supreme Court to limit the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, from existing power plants under the Clean Air Act, along with other challengers, including coal companies and coal-friendly industries. Democratic-led states and major power companies, I will note, Con Edison, Exelon, PG&E, they all sided with Joe Biden's administration against that challenge, as those power companies have already easily met the challenge to move to renewable energy that was outlined in the long-dead Obama clean power plant regulation. Yeah, and they did it way cheaper than all of the nightmare scenarios that Republicans had falsely claimed would happen. It was really cheap, and they did it even faster than the mandate would have been had it had ever come into effect. The reductions that were sought by Obama uh, were by 2030, but they've already been achieved thanks to market-driven closure of hundreds of coal plants. Because coal is expensive. Renewables are much cheaper now. The uh, Supreme Court justices uh, heard the oral arguments in this case on February 28th, uh, 28, which happens to be the very same day that a U.N. panel released a 3,675-page report warning that the effects of climate change are about to get much, much worse, making the world sicker, hungrier, poorer and more dangerous in coming years and once again urging immediate global action to combat the climate crisis in hopes of staving off the worst of its effects. Well, the Supreme Court has just made that much, much harder because, you know, it's just a controversy of the day or whatever the hell it is that uh, Justice Roberts said. In the meantime, the Biden administration wants the U.S. power sector completely decarbonized by 2035, 
though that has been their announced goal. They have yet to finalize any actual requirements to do so. And yet this radical court picked up this case anyway. As 19 mostly Republican-led states and coal companies led this fight at the court against broad EPA authority to regulate carbon output. Desi Doyen, uh, we're going to talk about the legal aspects of all of this and the larger effort by the right to cripple, to dismantle the so-called administrative state, at least when there's a Democrat in charge of it in the White House. We'll talk about that with Mark in a second. But your thoughts on the ruling itself and the effect that it will now have on the ability for the administration to somehow tackle the climate crisis, uh, you know, as the hands down greatest challenge of our generation. Yes, not just of our generation, but of all future generations to come. Uh, And yes, of course, this ruling is expected, but still a a punch to the gut because it's going to make it much harder to meet any kind of climate emissions uh, action policies. You know, Biden had promised other nations under the Paris Climate Accord Mm -hmm. that the U.S. was going to, at the very minimum, get to clean electricity by 2035. This makes it way harder if the EPA can't set standards for power plants. And remember, the U.S. is the largest historical emitter by far. It has an outsized responsibility to to act and to help other nations to cut their emissions as well. So there are things that the Biden EPA can do. They can do a narrow, modest regulation that could uh, tinker slightly around the margins. Um, there are a couple of other uh, policies that uh, standards that the EPA is writing right now, like uh, cutting uh, climate warming methane from oil and gas leaks, helping to accelerate the shift to electric vehicles. Um, you know, but basically all of those could also be challenged and are actually that same group of Republican plaintiffs that were funded by the right wing billionaire mm-hmm, donors. Yeah. They're already um, going uh, challenging a case right now that uh, would have accelerated electric vehicle adoption in the U.S. So one can expect that they're going to do that again. Um, And so by curtailing the executive branch, that really just leaves the legislative branch to uh, to take care of any kind of federal action. And and they have not acted because the Republicans do not want to act on this issue for decades since they have been warned about this. By the way, I want you to keep all of this in mind. You know, when you next hear these Republicans decrying activist judges legislating from the bench, that is exactly what they want. They want activist judges legislating from the bench. They just want to make sure that there were Republicans in service to the, uh, you know, their their corporate masters. Yeah, and the fossil fuel industry. Yep. So so Dems, Democrats would, of course, need at least two more sen- senators who would be willing to eliminate the filibuster in Congress. And beyond Congress, action then moves to the states, which means your state legislature is super important. And whoever gets elected in 2022 is super important. Now, there was also what I think is a bit of good news I mentioned from the court today regarding the attempt to force President Biden to continue Donald Trump's cruel so-called remain in Mexico immigration policy. Uh, So we'll ask Mark about that. We will discuss all of this and much more with the great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate. That is coming up next right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. We are 100% listener supported thanks to listeners like you who drop by bradblog.com/donate. 
You know, I'm I'm reminded once again today of the old Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. I think it's a Chinese curse. Anyway, I could do with much less interesting times, frankly. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Okie dokie. Well, following on tons of news last week at the corrupt extremist U.S. Supreme Court, among other things, their banning of states' rights to well-regulate the bearing of arms, as specifically mandated in the U.S. Constitution, but ignored by the court's radical, not conservative justices in knocking down New York's century-old law regulating the concealed carry of firearms, and, of course, the court overturning its own 50-year precedent written by a Republican justice in 1973 in Roe v. Wade, establishing constitutional protections for the privacy rights of individuals and reproductive freedoms. Well, now, uh, and that wasn't all they did last week, but now on the last day of its term before their summer break, the Trump-McConnell-Roberts Court in an activist 6-3 to three majority opinion, has gutted the ability of the EPA to regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act. That despite the act's long-standing mandate for the federal agency to restrict dangerous pollutants. The effort to handicap the federal agency is bad enough on its own, but it's also being seen by experts today as part of a years-long project by right-wing legal activists to, uh, as Donald Trump's disgraced former advisor Steve Bannon has vowed over and, over, and, over and over again to, quote, dismantle the administrative state. As Thursday's ruling could ultimately prove to be much larger than the already huge decision to handcuff the Biden administration EPA's ability to tackle our worsening climate crisis, which has put the globe, as the U.N. and the world's climate scientists have repeatedly warned, on a fast track to disaster for humanity itself. But again, this may be much bigger than global warming, if you can imagine such a thing. On the other hand, there was also what I think is some better news regarding the Biden administration's ability to make their own immigration policy rather than be forced to continue Donald Trump's, as a Trump-appointed federal judge had previously ordered in blocking Biden from overturning Trump's remain in Mexico policy, uh, as Biden had tried to do on day one of his administration, and on the last day of its nine-month term, the court said goodbye to the Bill Clinton-appointed Justice Stephen Breyer after nearly three decades on the court, and hello to the Biden-appointed Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who was sworn into office on Thursday as the first black female ever seated on the high court in its quarter-millennium of existence here to help us make sense of all of that and perhaps even more if time allows at the end of what I think is fair to describe as one of the most radical terms in U.S. Supreme Court history, at least in modern times. We'll see if he agrees. It's the one and only Mark Joseph Stern, longtime friend and court correspondent for the broadcast and officially a longtime constitutional expert and legal journalist for Slate.com. Mark, uh, I know it feels like nothing but grim times of late when you've joined us on the show. Today is absolutely no exception, unfortunately, but I am somehow comforted to know that you are here, that you are with us, 
and that maybe you can help us make sense of what is going on so we can figure out what to do about it and how to get through it, as I believe we must somehow. I cannot overstate how much I appreciate your confidence in my ability (laughs) to decipher what is often just a bunch of garbage spewing out of this Supreme Court like a dump truck going up an incline that was just a little too steep. But we will try together. We will try to get through this together, all of us. Uh, so, Mark, it, it's uh, my, is it my imagination uh, uh, regarding this West Virginia versus EPA case? Is it my imagination? Or didn't the Supreme Court, many, many years ago now, during the George W. Bush administration, I think, already rule that the EPA did, in fact, have the power to regulate carbon emissions under the Clean Air Act's mandate to regulate pollution that they found to be an endangerment to the public. Wasn't that ruling uh, the one that prevented the Bush administration at the time from opening an email from the EPA for years that contained its so-called endangerment finding regarding carbon pollution Uh, and climate change as a danger. Am am I imagining all of that? You are not imagining ample precedent that includes but is not limited to the landmark decision in Massachusetts versus EPA that held that the uh, federal government must, not can, Mm -hmm. but must regulate and limit carbon emissions in the United States because carbon is a pollutant under the Clean Air Act, and thus the EPA has a legal obligation to institute guidelines that reduce uh, the level of greenhouse gases that America is emitting. So, okay, good. I'm not crazy. That's what I thought happened. And now uh, this decision seems to be the complete opposite. On what basis does the court now seem to reverse to, to be reversing what seems to have been its very own precedent? And as as you suggested, commandment on this matter from just uh, 10 or 15 years ago. So this case involves a regulation that does not exist called the Clean Power Plan, Uh which Barack Obama attempted to institute. It was blocked by the Supreme Court just before Antonin Scalia died by a 5-4 to vote. It was never passed, and it will never pass, um, but the Supreme Court decided to take it up in this case just to stop Joe Biden from trying. And what this plan did was encourage states to reduce emissions Mm -hmm. by not just installing or having companies install new technology and update equipment at power plants, but to shift energy generation away from dirtier energy sources like coal specifically Mm -hmm. toward cleaner energy sources, ideally renewables like solar and wind. Um, And this uh, is, according to Obama and now the Biden administration, uh, perfectly within the realm of the Clean Air Act, which directs the EPA to continually decide the best system of emissions reduction. Mm -hmm. And the the administration said, look, this is a system. It is is an entire regime to move these states away from dirty energy toward clean energy. And in its 6-3 to three decision today, the court said, no, a system only means what we say it means, and it does not include what the Clean Power Plan attempted. Even though just a couple of uh, decades ago in that, co- uh, that, ca- uh, that case, the Massachusetts case, the court seems to have decided just the opposite. Right. And even though the plain text of the law very clearly directs 
the EPA to devise some kind of system uh, to reduce emissions. There is absolutely nothing in the Clean Air Act that suggests that this system has to be somehow physically related to the power plant itself. There is literally no language in the entire bill, which is many pages, you can read it top to bottom, that suggests that it has to be some kind of uh, scrubber on a smokestack or um, increased efficiency in burning coal or whatever. The, the, the language is as broad as you could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. So the Supreme Court decided to simply slap limitations on it that do not exist in the text because they don't like it as a matter of policy. In his ruling for the uh, GOP majority on the court, Chief Justice John Roberts wrote that the Clean Air Act doesn't give EPA the authority to restrict carbon emissions and that Congress instead must specifically uh, speak to this specific pollutant for some reason, writing, quote, a decision of such magnitude and consequence rests with Congress itself or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. Well, why is the authority in the Clean Air Act to limit dangerous pollution uh, not already a, quote, clear delegation from Congress? Well, that is a really great question, and I wish I had an answer, but I don't, because the Supreme Court has devised a series of doctrines, Justice Kagan in her dissent called it the get-out-of-text-free card, that simply allows the court to rewrite the law or ignore grants of power when it's uncomfortable with them or when it doesn't personally like them. And this is the, the one such instance, the classic instance. And so we have this law that's written very broadly that was designed to give the EPA latitude when future crises and problems arose. Mm -hmm. And then we have a Supreme Court that's simply unwilling to interpret it by its own terms and instead dead set on uh, imposing all of these ridiculous new rules that it just makes up out of thin air that have no basis in the statute or the Constitution. Which is why it's maddening when I hear people calling them textualists, because they are not reading the actual text, either of the Constitution, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, well-regulated firearms, as in the New York case, or in the actual text of the Clean Air Act here. Uh, The court is hanging its hat on the so-called major question Questions Doctrine, which, as I understand, is largely made up out of whole cloth. Uh, It is nowhere to be found, at least in my copy of the Constitution, uh, which the right-wingers now claim uh, to base all of their rulings on just about. What exactly is this fabled major questions doctrine, Mark? So it's hard to define because it is made up, but the basic idea is that If an agency tries to take some kind of very consequential action that has a serious and vast impact on the people or on the economy or on private industry, then that is a major question. And the Congress has to give the agency an extremely granular and explicit uh, permission slip to do what it wants to do, otherwise the courts will block it. And the problem with this test, this should be clear, is that it's totally subjective. What looks like a major question to you may look like a frivolous question to me, and it really shifts policymaking over to unelected judges from experts in federal agencies. Was this, uh, again, where does this come from? Is this major questions doctrine, this idea, is this new? Has this been around? Does it exist? It doesn't exist in the Constitution. Where does it come from? 
comes from Brett Kavanaugh's brain. So this <laughs> was his idea when he was on the lower court uh-huh. to try to smuggle in a kind of anti-regulatory agenda into what looks like statutory interpretation. And he came up with those words, I believe, or at least he's the one who popularized them. The court had never before today deployed that doctrine in those terms and in this way. So we're really entering a kind of new era of statutory interpretation where the text has to yield to whatever a majority of judges think is reasonable or plausible. And for that, we can largely thank Brett Kavanaugh. Well, let me play the uh, <clears throat> the devil's advocate here. Now, given that the Obama clean power plan was put on hold by the courts, it was never actually implemented. It was challenged by a bunch of Republican-controlled states and, of course, coal companies, etc. And then uh, it, before it was so while it was on hold and, and sort of hanging in limbo, it was then replaced repealed and replaced by the Trump administration's own plan to restrict the EPA's ability to regulate emissions. That rule was challenged by a bunch of Democratic-controlled states, blocked uh, by the D.C. Court of Appeals. So uh, just sort of arguendo here, doesn't it make sense for the Supreme Court to say, well, there is such an even split and a difference of opinion among the states, therefore Congress must specifically speak to the matter before anybody can do anything? Uh, I I mean, no, because that's not how our our government is supposed to work. I mean, the, the Supreme Court is not supposed to play referee between two competing administrations interpreting the same statute and just say, well, if they're evenly divided, then we'll step in and say nobody gets to do anything until Congress passes a new law. That is certainly the premise of Robert's opinion, and it's the position that six justices take every time they assess a statute. But the whole point of an elected uh, government checked by an unelected judiciary is that the judiciary would play a modest role, and it would simply ask whether or not the elected branches were passing and enforcing laws correctly. And, you know, again, if you read the text of the Clean Air Act, you would be hard-pressed to find anything that doesn't permit the Clean Power Plan or any other kind of system of emission reduction that would reduce greenhouse gases. All you can find in this opinion, rather than text, is a personal uh, sense of insult from John Roberts that the Biden administration would even consider doing something like this after five justices made it clear in 2016 that they would never allow it. Uh, Unbelievable. And at the same time, in his concurrence, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch, uh, whose mother was actually Ronald Reagan's EPA administrator, uh, and she gutted its budget. She prevented a whole bunch of enforcement of... uh, uh, of pollutants and so forth. Of course, Gorsuch is delighted to find a new way to pretty much, you know, stop anything that the court feels like blocking by simply declaring it to be a major question. So my major question, uh, isn't it almost by definition that only so-called major questions of the day make their way to the Supreme Court in the first place? Otherwise, if they weren't such big questions, they probably would have been decided at a lower court. That is a great question. And it's funny because the justices have a line they like to say about how only the toughest questions get taken up by SCOTUS. Right. Because, you know, everything else gets resolved in the lower courts. There's no splits. 
Um, and so I, this is just another example that I'll probably steal from my own article in the future <laughs> of how this doctrine stacks the deck against mm-hmm. the regulatory state and against administrative agencies. Because if, if a question comes to the court, by definition, it is major. Yeah. And there is really nothing to stop the Supreme Court from just beginning with the assumption that a question is major until proven otherwise, and just slap down every regulation that comes before it as too big or too innovative to fit within Congress's scheme. Yeah, and that's what Gorsuch actually did in his concurrence. He sort of, uh, uh, you know, crowed that the court is using this major questions doctrine, quote, in all corners of the administrative state, whether the issue at hand involved uh, an agency's asserted power to regulate tobacco products, ban drugs used in physician-assisted suicide, Side, extend Clean Air Act regu- regulations, uh, impose an eviction moratorium, or enforce a vaccine mandate. Pretty much everything that they deal with is a major question. So perhaps the larger uh, question here, and, and frankly, there isn't a whole lot that is larger, I should note, than the need to curb carbon emissions to right. try and save, preserve life on Earth itself. But, you know, the larger legal and constitutional matter, and I think you and I may have previously discussed this when the court blocked the Biden administration's COVID policies, is this all meant really to simply cripple the so-called administrative state, to destruct it, as uh, uh, Steve Bannon has said, the ability for federal executive branch agencies to do anything that is not at least specifically mandated by Congress? Yes, but I would go further and say that even things that are mandated by Congress are not safe. Because how clearly Congress gives directions is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. And you may well disagree with me about what best system of reduction means. Um, But, you know, I think that you could make a reasonable argument on both sides that it encompasses something like what the Clean Power Plan says. And I think that if you went back and asked somebody in Congress when this law was passed, do you think that it encompasses the Clean Power Plan, if you could Mm -hmm. peer into the future, they might say yes, their colleague might say no. It is very difficult, if not impossible, for Congress to speak as clearly as the Supreme Court wants it to. Mm. And that is another reason why this just completely stacks the deck against regulation. And as clearly as experts uh, at agencies like the EPA can discuss these topics, and that's why this is often left to them uh, to make these rules and regulations. Uh, Yeah, I mean, experts have expertise. Supreme Court justices don't. That is not going to stop them. Apparently not. There's a bunch of other issues, another one today uh, that I want to ask you about uh, and some others from uh, over the past week. Let me uh, very quickly, before I get to this break here, the remain in Mexico policy. This is other news from the court on its final day this term. It it seems like better news, though, uh, frankly, I'm no longer sure if it is or isn't. That's how little legitimacy, frankly, this court now has in my eyes. I I completely agree. Um, It's. (laughs) It's big news in the sense that five justices just barely agreed that Joe Biden is still the head of state 
and still has power over foreign affairs and border policy, rather than one completely demented rogue judge appointed by Donald Trump in Texas who had seized control over border policy from the executive branch and exercised it all by himself for nearly a year now. Um, so that is really, that is a good thing that five justices agree that in fact Biden is allowed to make his own border policy within mm-hmm. the four corners of the law mm-hmm. and that he is not required to adhere to Donald Trump's depraved policy of forcing every asylum seeker to wait in a tent city in Mexico or in a detention center in the United States and can resume the quarter century tradition of allowing many migrants into the United States while they await their asylum hearings. Um, But again, only five votes for that proposition, four votes the other way. And that makes me very anxious about what these kinds of cases will do in the future. I should note the uh, three uh, Democratic appointed justices uh, voted in favor of this, along with Chief Justice John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, But why did it take so long? Biden ended the, uh, the, the Trump policy, or at least tried to, on day one after being sworn in. It doesn't even seem like this one should have made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. It was so ridiculous. Ridiculous claiming a president can't set his own immigration policy and must, you know, carry on the one by his predecessor. Why did they even take so long? Well, because this crazy judge, Matthew Kazmarak in Texas, he halted the repeal of Remain in Mexico. Uh, and then the Fifth Circuit upheld his decision. Mm-hmm. And then the Supreme Court, by a six to three vote, decided not to intervene, and for nearly a year allowed this one judge to force this policy back into effect and to oversee diplomatic negotiations with Mexican officials to try to get them to accept thousands and thousands of migrants on their side of the border under constant threat of judicial sanctions. So for about a year, we had one Trump judge in Texas really ruling over an entire realm of border policy in this country. All right. Well, got to go to a break, Mark. But uh, this seems like a very big issue, perhaps a major question that Congress (laughs) must ring in on before any policy can be implemented at all. That seems to be where we're headed on a lot of this uh, stuff. Let me take a quick break. We'll come back with, uh, well, a whole bunch of a lightning round with Mark Joseph Stern from Slate.com and a whole bunch of other issues. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to The Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. But if I had the chance to start all over, I would be wishing today... On a four-leaf clover And leaving would be the last thing on my mind If I could turn back the hands of time Yeah, if I could turn back the hands of time There would be uh, quite a few things I might like to do In the meantime, the Supreme Court seems to be turning back the hands of time Thanks to our friend and listener Casey for that bumper music suggestion Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com speaking with the great Mark Joseph Stern 
uh, who reports on the law, the court system, Supreme Court, and everything else at Slate.com. On the final day of this uh, term at the U.S. Supreme Court, a very troubling term indeed. Mark, I want to run through a bunch of items uh, that have sort of gotten lost in everything else that's going on with the uh, Supreme Court. And I think this one was on the same day that they overturned Roe v. Wade. The uh, radical six to three court last week gutted Miranda, if I understand it, ruling that a person who did not receive their Miranda warning you know, the right to remain silent, to have a court appointed attorney and so forth when they are detained has actually no right to sue the government or the police for that constitutional violation. That sounds really bad and something that even right wingers would be furious about, but uh, not so much. So, I mean, this case is a sleeper case if I've ever seen one, and it's a quintessential example of the conservative justices laying the groundwork for a major blockbuster down the road without most people paying attention. What the court did in this case was declare that Miranda warnings, you've seen them on TV, you have the right to remain silent, Mm -hmm. that they are not rooted in the Constitution or mandated by the Constitution, and that receiving Miranda warnings is not a constitutional right, which means that if you are not Mirandized, as we say, if you don't receive your Miranda warnings, and you are coerced into a confession, and that confession is used against you at trial, you have no recourse, you cannot sue for a violation of your civil rights, the courthouse door is slammed shut to you. And that is a wildly basic, like you said, you mentioned TV. We all grew up seeing that on TV, the right to remain silent. I mean, how long has that been around, and does this effectively gut uh, the Miranda rights? I mean, if there's no consequences for not giving them, then it's it's as if they don't exist at all. So Miranda warnings have been around for nearly six decades. And the answer to your question is, let's wait and see. Because what the court said in this case is that Miranda is not a constitutional right, and so you can't file a civil rights claim when it's violated. But the court said that for now, you can continue to try to have evidence, usually a confession, suppressed at trial if you were not Mirandized beforehand. So if you're beaten up to an inch of your life and not Mirandized, and you say, okay, fine, I did it, you can still try to prevent that false confession, they're quite often false, from being used at trial. You can suppress it. But the, the, the problem is that the majority opinion by Justice Alito contains all of this language, basically saying that that's going to be the next thing to fall, calling it controversial and bold and widely criticized, and suggesting that this is kind of the first of a one-two punch that's going to tear down Miranda warnings altogether. The Miranda rights are controversial. The right to remain silent, to have a court uh, uh, attorney appointed if you cannot afford one, those are controversial now? Oh, very controversial at this Supreme Court. Wow. Okay. Um... Uh, uh, moving on to, uh, uh, well, uh, a gerrymandering decision once again this week that sort of got lost in the fray. The uh, court overruled a lower court, which had said that Louisiana's newly drawn congressional map was unconstitutional in violation of the Voting Rights Act. It diluted the power of black voters in the state. The lower court had ordered that an additional black majority black district be drawn in a state where I I believe one third of the population is black. And yet 
Only one of six congressional districts have a uh, a black majority in them. So on Tuesday, Supreme Court ordered the uh, overturn that lower court and ordered the original Republican-drawn gerrymander to be used in 2020. This is not the first instance we've seen of this uh, this year. Is the court signaling at this point they are simply going to overturn the entirety of the Voting Rights Act just the way they overturned the entirety of, uh, of Roe v. Wade? Yes. Uh, I mean, really, they've already done it because... The Supreme Court has held for decades that the Voting Rights Act contains a ban on racial gerrymandering, which means diluting the voting strength of racial minorities by usually packing them all into as few districts as possible so that they can only elect a tiny number of representatives and then distributing the rest throughout majority white districts. This year, in this case and in a case out of Alabama, the Supreme Court preemptively repealed that provision yeah. by halting lower court decisions that had enforced it. And if you'll recall in the Alabama decision, even Chief Justice John Roberts sided with the liberals, not because he likes the Voting Rights Act, but because he said, look, guys, if we're going to overturn this ban on racial gerrymandering, we have to do it the right way. We have to hold a hearing. We have to get briefing. You cannot just jump the gun and strike down these, these decisions that are based on law that theoretically still exists, but it doesn't seem like the conservative supermajority cares anymore. And so uh, on Wednesday, the court just went ahead and said, you know what, Louisiana, you can institute your racially gerrymandered maps, and Democrats have one fewer seat in the 2022 election. And Roberts went along with it this time, right, even though it was I on the shadow docket? Yes, I think because he lost this battle in the Alabama case. It was like, wow. time's up. So, therefore, so are his, uh, you know, morals, <laughs> his notion of doing the right thing. Well, if I can't win, I'll just go ahead with the with the other people. Unbelievable. Uh, and related uh, today, if I understand it, the court accepted a case to be heard next term from, uh, is it the North Carolina case? Yeah. Uh, in which they will decide next term, I guess, if there is such a thing as the so-called independent legislature doctrine. We've discussed it on this show, you and I, many times. That requires uh, only state legislature, that allows, I guess, only state legislatures, not secretaries of state or governors, boards of election, or even the people via ballot initiatives, only state legislatures to make all rules and laws regarding federal elections in their state. So is uh, this just another made-up rule, like the major questions doctrine, uh, that isn't in the Constitution? And uh, is, does the fact that the court has now accepted this case mean that, well, it is likely to uh, declare that doctrine to into existence? I am terrified about this case. Absolutely terrified. Because, yes, I think there are obviously—I know— that there are obviously four votes to support this doctrine, this theory. Uh, Kavanaugh, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch mm -hmm. have already said that they believe in it. The only question is whether Barrett will go along. Roberts is something of a moderate in this one regard. He doesn't want to intrude on state sovereignty as egregiously as this doctrine would, because it would essentially bar states from structuring governments as they see fit and bar state courts from interpreting state law. So this all rides on Amy Coney Barrett's vote, mm -hmm. and whenever anything rides on Amy Coney Barrett's vote, it probably means that the American people are in deep, deep, deep 
trouble. I uh, uh, this to me, if I understand it, would unleash absolute chaos in all fifty states in every regard. I mean, are the implications of this as bad as I understand them? That at this point, every law could be essentially thrown out, every rule, every regulation when it comes to election could be overturned if it is not explicitly named and passed by the legislature? So under the, under an extreme version of this theory, you know, the, the Supreme Court could just uh, have uh, state legislatures appoint electors in the Electoral College to the losing candidate in a presidential race, which is exactly what Donald Trump wanted them to do in mm-hmm. 2020 and what Ginny Thomas was urging legislators to do while her husband was trying to institute this theory. Yeah, that would be very bad. And, uh, of course, I, I that would almost be the worst-case scenario. Frankly, I think there's all kinds of other mischief that could also be caused uh, by this if, if, if the court comes down the way we think they're going to, and that would be in... I guess 2023, uh, next year this time. Mark, uh, you know, we hear a lot about the court with all of this becoming delegitimized. But I got to ask, you know, what does that actually mean? I mean, what is the practical danger of that happening? What, if anything, would actually change? Wouldn't they just continue to operate illegitimately as they already do? And then and their opinions would still become the, the, the law of the land? I mean, isn't that what we're looking at? Oh, yeah, they're illegitimate, but they're still the Supreme Court. Here's the problem. We've decided as a nation to insulate the Supreme Court and the justices from any kind of accountability. They don't have constituents. They don't face elections. There's literally nothing that we can do realistically to remove one of them from the bench before they want to, uh, before they want to go. So I, I agree that the chatter about an illegitimate Supreme Court, I mean, it, it may be interesting as an intellectual matter, but there's no immediate consequences for the Supreme Court going rogue. There's yeah. nothing we can do right now. Yeah. Expanding the court, yes. Imposing term limits, yes. But in terms of altering the current balance of the justices, mm-hmm. there's really no way to do it. You can only add or try to think more broadly about how to strip power from the courts in the long term. Well, it sure would be smart if uh, Democrats and Joe Biden started to think exactly along those lines. There was a story from Reuters last night, you know, that said Biden and, and other Democratic officials, they're concerned that, you know, any radical moves in response to overturning Roe, for example, would be politically polarizing ahead of November's Midterm elections undermine trust in in institutions like the Supreme Court and so forth. Uh, Vox's Sean Illing responded to that to say the GOP stopped playing the liberal Democratic game years ago and the Democrats keep showing up to the park with their bats and gloves. Sounds about right to me, Mark. That's pretty much it. All right. Uh, before I let you go on uh, on Thursday, maybe this is something brighter. I don't know. On Thursday, uh, it was the uh, final day of the uh, Supreme Court's term. The Bill Clinton nominated Justice Stephen Breyer retired and the Joe Biden nominated Ketanji Brown Jackson was sworn in to replace him as the court's first black female justice. Mark Joseph Stern, have you a uh, any eulogy or parting words for uh, Justice Breyer and any welcoming remarks for the newly sworn in Justice Jackson? 
Thank you for your service, Justice Breyer. You left not a moment too soon, and we are very grateful that you paved the way for someone who I think will be a wonderful justice, who will have much to contribute to this court and deserve so much better than the colleague she's about to inherit. Uh, at least five of them, to be fair. <laughs> yeah. the, the other two are, are not too bad. Mark Joseph Stern covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, election law, and much more in good times and bad, unfortunately, or fortunately, I should say. Uh, and fortunately enough, he's uh, willing and able to come and, and talk to us about it. And somehow it does make me feel better to know we're not alone here. Mark is is out there on this beat. Thank you, brother. You can find his work at Slate.com and on the Twitters at MJS underscore dc get some rest we'll talk soon mr stern all right talk soon bye-bye thank you okay well hey a lot of good news today huh (laughs) on the broadcast yeah you know one of the things that he said about the independent state legislature doctrine just want to point out that if that passes in 2023 that means whoever controls your state legislature in 2024 will have the control the ability to overthrow the will of the voters so those people are being elected this year in, in 2022. 2022. Exactly. So underscores, hey, elections have consequences and your vote in 2022 is crucial. Thank you very much once again for that reminder. I guess we can't give it enough. Hopefully folks are paying attention. I hope. Uh, anyway, all right. My thanks uh, once again to my guest, Mark Joseph Stern, and to my producer, Desi Doyen. Thank you very much. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We uh, are greatly appreciate it, particularly in these dark times. I know it is not always fun, but we got to work with what we got to work with. Uh, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download them all for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves, where we uh, hope you'll consider a one-time donation and or a monthly subscription of any amount you like. It is greatly appreciated. It is much needed. bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. I'll see you there at all of the above. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>